Hello once again, this is Mark Winwood broadcasting the Elegant Mind discussion and studies on Tibetan mind science, life science, Tibetan Buddhism, and all things in between, broadcast on KAPY Valley 104.9 FM radio, serving the communities of the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Redmond Ridge, Carnation, and Duval. It is a pleasure to be with you today. We're going to be discussing a topic that has come up many times in teachings over the years, and that is, what are the Tibetan mind sciences? What is Tibetan Buddhism? Buddhism, is it science? Is it religion? Is it philosophy? Is it a way of life, a perspective, a socialization, a code of ethic, a bunch of um, gibberish and superstition, or what exactly, what exactly is this? And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Tibetan mind sciences, Tibetan Buddhism, primarily as science. What makes it science? Because I think here in the West, we've already got enough religions. We don't need another religion, but mind science, the science of mental health in terms of perspective and intention and behavior, I believe is very relevant to us. So that's what we're going to be talking about. As we always do, we're going to have a musical interlude about halfway through the program. A Bobby Vega a number band that Bobby played with at a concert in California in the year 2000. I'll give you the details when we get to the music. So here we go. Buddhism as science or religion. You know, starting as far back as the mid-19th century, various people have tried to promote Buddhism as being scientific. And this idea really started among various Asian intellectuals, some of whom were pushing back against Western colonization by demonstrating the strength of their culture, that, that their ideas and their, and their, and their, their culture was not based on, on superstition or some kind, of, some kind of murky spiritual ideas, but was really scientific in nature to, to provide some credibility. And, and as the years have gone on since then, Western Buddhists um, have also promoted this, this claim of the science of Buddhism to give it some, some kind of weight, you know, some kind of credibility. So I think it's important to understand that when we, we speak about Tibetan Buddhism, we have, there are many different aspects to it. There's what we can call Buddhist science, there's what we can call Buddhist psychology, and there's what we can call Buddhist religion. When we speak about Buddhist science, we're referring to things like logic, how we know things, basically the view of reality, how the universe has come about, etc., these types of things, the relation between mind and matter. All of this is dealing with scientific topics and Buddhism has a lot to offer in these areas. Then there's Buddhist psychology, which deals with various emotional states, especially disturbing emotions, afflictive emotions, that cause us a great deal of unhappiness, talking about things like anger and jealousy and greed and arrogance, etc. And Buddhism is also very rich in methods for how to understand where these problems come from, and how to deal with them, these disturbing emotions. And then there's Buddhist religion, what we call religion, on the other hand, which deals with various ritual aspects and prayers, 
It deals with topics like rebirth or reincarnation. Um, and it's also, it's a very rich, very rich uh, area of study. So when we ask, well, what is Buddhism? You know, is there a need? Is there a place? Is Buddhism relevant here in the West, in the contemporary world? I think what we need to do is look specifically at Buddhist science and Buddhist psychology. If people are interested in the more religious aspects of Buddhism, that's great. That's fine. No problem. But in general, it's not very easy if you're brought up in one religion to change to another. And for most people, it causes confusion and conflict within themselves, loyalty conflict. And particularly at the time of death, is there heaven? Is there purgatory? Is there hell? Is there nothing? Is there ether? Uh, is there rebirth, reincarnation? How does that work? There's a lot of confusion about what to actually believe and perhaps what to prepare for, what to prepare for. So I think we need to be very careful about being Western people growing up in Western traditions and turning to the religious aspects of Buddhism because there are problems that can be there, perhaps superstition coming in, expecting miracles to happen, uh, at least in the beginning. You know, it's much better to focus on the Buddhist science and the Buddhist psychology, which are relevant. They're, this is mind, and this is relevant regardless of whatever particular religion you might be practicing, whatever your spiritual beliefs, or whether you have no spiritual beliefs. You certainly have a mind, and you are certainly you are certainly interconnected and relating to everything around you at every moment. So there's real value, there's real validity to talking and studying Buddhist science, Buddhist psychology. Um, so let's take a look at some of the aspects of Buddhist science and Buddhist psychology. First, in Buddhist science, as I said um, earlier, logic. Logic is very important. It's a very important part of the Buddhist training and the way that logic is normally studied in the Tibetan Buddhist world is by dialectics or in terms of debating, debating. And why is debate important? Well, the purpose of debate in the Tibetan world is not to win over your opponent, not to prove that your opponent is wrong or how brilliant or how smart you are, but rather the whole point of, of debate is that there's somebody who is the proponent, and they state a certain position or a certain understanding of one of the Buddhist teachings, and the other person challenges those understandings and tries to test the other person to see how consistent, how consistent they are, how logical they are in their understandings. So if you believe this or that, then logically something else follows from it. And if what follows from it is nonsense, doesn't make any sense, then there's something wrong with the understanding. So this is important because if you're going to try to understand something deeply concerning basic facts of reality, let's say ideas of impermanence, then we want to, well, what's called meditation. We want to think deeply about it and make it a part of the way that we view the world. Everything is changing moment to moment to moment. And there's something which is important to understand in terms of our general mental peace. For example, you buy a new computer and eventually it breaks and you get all upset about it. 
Why should it break? I paid so much money for this. Why should it break? And so on. But if you think about it logically, the reason that it broke was that it was made in the first place. Because it was made from so many different parts and so many different things that are interconnected that it's really unstable. Everything's aging, and everything's aging at a different speed. And of course, at some point, it's got to break. Even when we meet someone, we develop a strong friendship or a relationship or maybe even a partnership. Eventually, it ends. So why did it end? Why do we break up? Well, logically speaking, cause and effect, we break up because we met. Every moment after we met, the circumstances and the conditions changed in this person's life and in my life, individually and together. The circumstances that supported our initial friendship are no longer there. The friendship is dependent on these conditions, and so when it ends, well, of course, it's going to end because the conditions supporting it have changed. So the final event, which seems to us to cause the breakup, you know, it's an argument, let's say, or, you know, something occurs, and that's what did it. That's what broke us up. But no, that's only the condition. That's only the tipping point that caused the friendship to end. If it was in this condition, it would have been something else. But the actual cause for it to end was because it began. So if you think about this and you extend this a little bit further, look at this in terms of our life. Uh, and this is really the Buddhist scientific attitude toward death. What's the reason we die? The reason is because we were born. The actual sickness or accident that occurs that brings about our death is just the circumstance of death. So you're born, you die. It's simple. That's reality. These are aspects of Buddhist science. This is the logic, the logical nature of Buddhist science. So if you're in a debate, the other person would test your understanding. This is the, the method of the science. The other person would test your understanding and try to find holes in your argument. Well, you could say, well, if I didn't eat this or I didn't go there, I wouldn't have died. Whereas the other person would say, yeah, yeah, okay. But there would be other circumstances. Because the truth of the matter is, because you were born, you will die. Whatever the circumstances are, are the circumstances. So it's kind of like that through logic, through debate. One comes to a definite understanding without any indecision. That way, our understandings become very firm and very stable. They become knowledge. And whether we're doing meditation after that or whatever, it becomes much more effective to bring it down deeply. So this type of discussion or debate or logic is very helpful for anybody in any situation, Buddhist or not. Very often we think in ways that are very unclear, very emotional. We don't think of the consequences of our actions or the consequences of our way of thinking. So if we can just learn to think logically, if we can just see things in terms of the undeniable nature of cause and effect, of impermanence, we can perhaps have far less trouble in our lives. So this logic is one aspect of Buddhist science. And then we have reality, <laughs> reality. 
in terms of reality, one point you know I've already mentioned is the idea of impermanence. Everything is changing moment to moment to moment. Everything is coming closer and closer each moment to its end. This is reality. It's true about our age. We can think, oh, okay, every day I'm getting older and think, well, okay, how many of us think every day that I'm getting closer to my death? But that's just reality. But if we're aware of that, each day we're getting closer to the end and that death can happen at any time which is true then perhaps we don't waste our time we don't put things off until tomorrow 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 but we use our lives in as meaningful a way as we can and what's most meaningful is to try to be of benefit to others so this is reality and it's very helpful to think if this was my last day, what would I want to do in this last day? How would I use it in a meaningful way? Because we never know when that last day will be. We never know. We could be hit by a car after this broadcast is over. This isn't meant to make us depressed. This is not morbid. It's meant to make us use our time much more meaningfully. So, you know, let's take another example in terms of reality. Imagine being in an elevator with 10 other people and the elevator gets stuck. The electricity goes off and you're stuck in this elevator with these 10 people for a whole day. This one elevator, 10 people for a whole day. How would you deal with each other? If you start to fight, if you start to argue and so on, it's going to be like hell in this elevator. The only way you can survive is if everybody is helpful, friendly, and kind to each other. Because you're all stuck in this elevator together. You're all stuck in the same situation. So this is logical, to be kind, to work with each other. This is reasonable, isn't it? So take that idea and extend it out to the whole planet. The whole planet is like a big elevator, and we're all stuck on this planet together. If we argue and fight with each other, it just becomes absolutely miserable for everybody, as we can attest to lots of the headlines in the news these days. So the only way that we can survive is by everybody being friendly and kind and helpful to each other because we're all here together and we're all in the same situation. We all breathe the same air. We all share the same ocean, the same water, the same land. We're all in the same elevator. So it's like this. This is reality together with logic. And then, you know, we have many fantasies. We have many projections. We imagine that we and others and the world exist in all kinds of impossible ways. We project that. It seems as though this is the way things exist, but it doesn't correspond to reality. It's just our fantasy. It's just our projections. For example, I might think I can act in a certain way and it doesn't have any consequences. So I don't need an education. I can be lazy and somehow this isn't going to have any effect on my life. I'll still be successful. I'll still be meaningful. Or that, well, I can be late or I can say cruel things to you and it won't have any consequences. I can sit and record this, this broadcast and I can say whatever the heck I want to say. I can be rude, I can be cruel, I can be offensive, and it's not going to make a difference. Who cares? 
doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to anything or anyone. But that's simply not true. That's simply not true. A lot of people, as odd as this is, a lot of people regard others as not really having feelings. They never think that what they say might hurt the other person. So I can be late. I can keep them waiting for me. It really doesn't matter. Well, I mean, this is a very, uh, very defined example, but this is not reality. This is a projection about cause and effect because the reality is that everybody has feelings just like me. And what I say and how I act with you is going to affect your feelings just as the way you treat me and speak to me affects my feelings. So that's reality, isn't it? And the more we understand that and keep mindful of that, the more considerate we are of others. We care about how we affect them and we modify our behavior accordingly. This is science. This is mind science. Or I can imagine that I exist completely independently of everybody else. This is also not reality, is it? If I think like that, then I think I should always get my way. I am the most important. So I should always be served first before everybody else in the restaurant. And then if we don't get our way, we get very upset. We get very angry. But the problem, of course, is that every el everyone else thinks that they're the most important person and nobody will agree that we're the most important. So this is our projection. This is our fantasy. This is not reality. This is a setting up a competitive situation that we can never completely win. We can never, and usually we don't win at all. Nobody is the center of the universe. Everyone thinks they are, but nobody is the center of the universe. Nobody is the most important. We're all equal in the sense that everyone wants to be liked. Nobody wants to be disliked. Everybody in the restaurant waiting to be served wants to have their meal, not just me. Everybody waiting in a doctor's office wants to have their turn, not just me. So we're all equal. And you know what? This is, again, reality. So this is part of Buddhist science, to understand reality and to modify our behavior accordingly. There are, of course, other aspects of the teachings about reality. And it's very interesting how Western scientists are just now, just now, starting to find that many of the points made in these ancient Buddhist sciences are correct. Different ways of looking at things which they had not considered before. For example, we have in Western science the law of conservation of matter and energy. Matter and energy can be neither created nor destroyed, only transformed. If we think in terms of that, what follows logically is there's no beginning and there's no end. Because matter and energy cannot be created and they cannot die. They can only be transformed. So scientifically, when we think in terms of the Big Bang, then we might think the Big Bang came from nothing. It started from nothing. But the Buddhist point of view is that there was something before the Big Bang. There was something that had to bang. Buddhism has no problem with the Big Bang as the, as the start of this particular universe. But there have been countless universes before, and there will be countless universes after. And Western science is slowly starting to think in these terms as well.
So it's also logical from a basic Western scientific point of view. So here again, we come to logic. If you believe that matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but only transformed, then it is totally inconsistent logically to assert, but it all began with the Big Bang. This is a clear, a clear example of the application of Buddhist logic and debate to positions that we have in Western science. And uh, again, scientifically speaking, one of the main assertions in Buddhist science is the relationship between mind and matter. Mind and matter are interrelated. You can't reduce mind to just the brain or some chemical process, you see. The problem is when you use the word mind, you tend to think of it as being some sort of thing. But that's not the Buddhist concept. The Buddhist concept speaks about mental activity. And mental activity, which means knowing things, we can describe it by some chemical or electrical process in the brain, but we can also describe it from an experiential point of view. And it's the experiential point of view that we're talking about when in Buddhist science we speak about mind. And medical sciences, scientists are discovering that it's true, what Buddhism says, that our state of mind, the quality of our experiencing life, will affect our physical health. So if we have peace of mind, inner calm. This means being free of always worrying and complaining and thinking in a very negative, pessimistic way. If we think in these negative ways, it's harmful to our health. Whereas if we're optimistic, kind, thinking of others, generous, friendly, calm, and confident, this strengthens the immune system and it's conducive to better health. So medical science in various centers around the world is doing research about this. There's a lot of work being done in, uh, in outside of uh, Boulder, Colorado. There's work being done in Bloomington, Indiana. It's being worked on all over research about this. And they're finding that what Buddhist science says is true, that our state of mind affects the body and it affects matter. And we have many programs in the West now using what's known as mindfulness meditation for control of pain to help people deal with stress and difficult situations. Basically, this uh, is, involves staying focused on the breath, which keeps us calm, connects us to, in a sense, earth, to a physical element, so that we're not so upset about thinking, me, 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 my pain, my worry, my anxiety, my horror my upsetness. It calms us down. It's helpful, helpful for pain management. So we certainly don't have to follow any type of Buddhist religion or Buddhist dogma in order to benefit from such methods. So this is Buddhist science, Buddhist science. Okay, so we're going to take a musical break now for the next 10 minutes or so. The song I'm going to share with you is an instrumental number called You're the One. It's a traditional song. You might have heard it in different iterations through the years. The musicians are Bobby Vega on the bass, Steve Kimmock on the guitar, Alan Hertz on the drums, and Pete Sears on the keyboards. This was a performance at the High Sierra Music Festival in Quincy, California on July 2nd, in the year 2000. This was the 
late night, the late night performance. So it was probably sometime way after midnight. Uh, High Sierra Music Festival is uh, goes on every year. It is a uh, a prime, a premium uh, festival musically. Great artists, wonderful environment up in the uh, in Sierra Mountains of California. So this is "You're the One." It's a it's a it's a dance song. It's a bouncy. It's a fun, bouncy dance song where each of the musicians talents and contributions are showcased and, uh, and they come together and uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun so you're the one bobby vega steve kimock alan hertz and pete sears and i'll see you back on the other side this is the elegant mind this is mark winwood your host i hope you enjoy the music
Okay, we're back. I hope you enjoyed You're the One, music from Vega, Kimok, Sears, and Hertz. I'm not sure if you were able to sit, if you listened to the whole song, if you were able to sit through the whole thing, or if, like many, I think, might have gotten up and danced and shook a little bit. But in any event, hope you enjoyed it. So we've been talking about Tibetan Buddhism, science, mind science, etc. And we're going to, in the second half of our program, we're going to talk about Buddhist psychology. Buddhist psychology deals with how we know things. So in other words, you know, the cognitive sciences, uh, the difference between psychology and science is, is not so strict. It's not so severe. So we, we have the study of ways of knowing. How do we know things? And we also have how do we deal with emotional problems? That's really the two areas of Buddhist psychology. How do we know things and how do we deal with emotional issues, emotional uh, emotional reactions to what we are perceiving as occurring within and without us. So ways of knowing, it's important to be able to recognize what's the difference between valid ways of understanding and invalid ways or confused or ignorant ways of understanding or knowing things. And Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism has a lot to say about this. A valid way of knowing something is defined as a way of knowing which is both accurate and decisive. Accurate and decisive. Accurate means it's correct. It corresponds to reality. It can be validated by others. And decisive means that we're sure, we're definite. It's not the state of mind of, well, yeah, maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that. I don't really know. Maybe one day I'll figure it out. But who really knows? That is not definite. That is not decisive. So what are the valid ways of knowing things? Well, we have what's known as bare perception. This is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and feeling some physical sensation. And we can also have this in our dreams, and that is, uh, it, then it's mental. So when we see someone, this needs to be valid. It's not always valid when we say, I thought I saw something over there, but I'm not quite sure. I thought I saw you in the crowd, but I'm not quite sure. I thought I saw you, but actually it was somebody else. I thought you said this, but maybe I was wrong and I heard it differently. That's not really valid. It's not accurate and it's not decisive. And there can be a lot of causes for this confusion, for this distortion. You know, like I took my glasses off and I just saw a blur in front of me. But you don't exist as a blur, do you? There's something wrong with my eyes, and that's why it looks distorted. That's why you look distorted. If I asked someone else, do you see a blur over there, they'd say no. So I'd know that something was wrong. So we have, you know, bare perception, and here we're talking about accurate, decisive perception. And also, valid is inferential understanding. It has to be valid, not incorrect. A valid inference, not an incorrect one. For example, where there's smoke, there's fire is classic, a classic example. You see smoke coming from a chimney on the far mountain. So we have a valid perception. You see the smoke and we can infer a fire. We don't really see the fire, but we see the smoke so we can infer the fire. Where there's smoke, there must be fire. So that's valid. But there are some things that you can't even know by logic, like the name of the person who lives in that house. For that, you need a valid source of information. 
That's also a type of inference that this person is a valid source of information and therefore what they say is true. Maybe the best example for this is when is my birthday? The only way I can know, the only way you can know when your birthday is, is by either asking your mother or your father, asking your mother or father, or seeing the records of valid source of information. There's many forms of inference. There's inference based on well-known conventions. You hear a sound. How do you know that it's a word? How do you know what meaning it has? It's quite an amazing process if you really stop and think about it. We're just hearing sounds, basically. Vibration in the eardrum. But because we've learned certain conventions, we infer when we hear the sound that it is the sound of a word, and we infer that it has a certain meaning. We have to check, because sometimes we think a person means something by what they say when they actually mean something completely different. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about this aspect of Buddhist psychology, the cognitive science. We have to check. I infer from what you said that this is what you mean. Is that correct or not? Very often we misunderstand what the other person's meaning is, don't we? Sometimes somebody says, I love you. And we could think that means that they're sexually interested in us, whereas that's not at all their meaning. A lot of misunderstanding can come because of that incorrect inference. So if it's a valid inference, it is accurate and is decisive. Presumption is invalid. I presume that you mean this, but I'm not sure. When we presume, we're guessing. We're basically guessing. I guess this is what you mean. It could be right, it could be wrong, but it's indecisive. I think this is what you mean. That's presumption, and we're not sure. Then there's indecisive wavering. Do you mean this, or do you mean that? And we go back and forth. And then there's distorted cognition, where we think something completely incorrect. This isn't at all what the other person meant. In summary, this is how cognition works, and Buddhism speaks a great deal about this. It's very, very helpful for us to understand from any type of background, and listen to this carefully, consider this, is my way of knowing this is correct or incorrect? Is my way of knowing correct or incorrect? If I'm still not sure, then I need to recognize that and try to correct it, to try to find out again what is, what is reality. This is helpful for anyone, and you don't need Buddhist religion and rituals for this. Then there are disturbing emotions. The other main topic in Buddhist psychology has to do with emotions. We have both positive and negative wholesome and unwholesome emotions. The negative ones are disturbing. They disturb our peace of mind. I'm talking about things like anger. The definition is that this is a state of mind which, when it arises, causes us to lose our peace of mind. So we become a little bit upset, a little bit nervous, and it causes confusion, and it causes us to lose self-control. So when we get angry, our energy, you can feel it. When you get angry, your energy is disturbed. We say and do things that later we might regret. We act compulsively. We hear a lot in Buddhist science about karma 
And what karma is talking about is this compulsive aspect of our behavior based on previous activities and habits. So when we have great attachment or desire or greed, then again, we're not calm. We're upset because we want to have something. And again, we have no self-control, like with that chocolate or those potato chips. I just have to eat it. So these are disturbing emotions. But then on the other hand, there are wholesome emotions. Buddhism isn't saying to get rid of all your emotions. There are things like love, which is the wish for others to be happy and to have the causes of happiness regardless of what they do, regardless of how they treat me or my loved ones. And there's compassion, the wish for others to be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. There's patience. There's respect. There are many positive emotions or attitudes as well. So we need to learn to be able to differentiate between what is constructive and what is destructive in our emotions and in our ways of acting. Buddhism is very rich in teaching not only all these different emotional states so that we can better recognize them, but it's also rich in the methods for helping us to get rid of these disturbing states of mind. So... Remember we were just talking about misconceptions, about projections of what's just not real? One of the most prominent projections is about how we exist. How we exist. How I exist. How you exist. As I was saying very simply, we think that we're the most important one. That we exist solidly by ourselves. And we should always have our way. And everyone should like us and respect us. What's very interesting is to think in terms of not everybody like the Buddha, so why should I expect everyone to like me? Perhaps that's a helpful statement to remember. Anyway, we think in terms of I am this, this solid thing sitting inside my head, the author of the voice going on in my head, worrying, thinking about what should I do? What do people think of me? As if there's a little me sitting in the head, seeing all the information coming in on a screen and loudspeaker from my senses and pushing the buttons that make my body move or my speech work. Okay, now I'll do this. Now I'll say that. By Buddhist perspectives, this is a disturbing misconception about ourselves. How do we know it's disturbing? Because it's based in insecurity. It makes us feel insecure. It makes us feel unsure. Thinking like that, this insecurity and worry about myself, you know, even though we don't particularly verbalize it, there is this, this, this underlying notion of what do people think of me? How important am I? How relevant am I? How insignificant am I, etc. So what happens is we have these projections not only about ourselves, but then about everything around us. We see various objects and we exaggerate the good qualities they have, that we believe they have. We project even good qualities they don't have. Like when we fall in love with somebody, they're the most wonderful person in the world. We totally ignore any shortcomings they might have. They're the most beautiful, desirable person I've ever seen. And then if we don't have them, there's this longing desire. Ah, I've got to get them as my friend. I've got to have them as my partner. And then if we have them as our friend, attachment in that we don't want to let them go, and greed in that we want more and more of their time just continue to blossom and to manifest. 
So this is a disturbing, this is a disturbing state of mind. It's an unsettling state of mind. We need to see reality. Everyone has strong points. Everyone has weak points. We often think, and this is completely unreal, again, that I'm the most important one. I'm the only one. You should give all your time to me. And we forget completely that they have other people in their lives, other things they're involved with, not just us. So what happens? We get angry. We get insecure. We get annoyed. We get disturbed. And if they don't call us, we exaggerate the negative quality of that. And we don't want to see any of the good qualities at that point of our relation with this person. And we get angry. We want to get this away from us. So we yell at them, why don't you call me? Why didn't you come? And all of this passive aggressiveness begins to emerge. So all of this is based on there's this little me that I should always have my way. I should be the most important one. And the unreality that I am the only one that matters in whichever person's life, I want to be the only one that matters. So Buddhist mind science, Tibetan Buddhist mind science, gives us a, provides a very clear analysis of what is upsetting, what is incorrect in this way of thinking and feeling. Because you see, our minds, our minds make things appear like that. And the problem is that we believe that this corresponds to reality. In fact, it's not even a belief. It's just an instinctive, non-thinking way of knowing it is, but it's really not. The problem is we believe, again, this corresponds to reality. We have all these methods to, in a sense, pop the balloon of our fantasy. It may feel as though I'm the only one who exists because when I close my eyes, I don't see anyone else anymore but there's still that voice in my head. But that's not reality. That doesn't correspond to reality. Everything doesn't stop existing when I close my eyes. So this is basic Buddhist psychology. Very, very, very basic. And there's lots that this leads to. Lots of deeper understandings, perceptual understandings, emotional understandings, and teachings and practices and meditations that really clarify and help us see this so so remarkably clear and then steps to rectify the confusion to obliterate the ignorance and then in addition to understanding identifying and dealing with the disturbing emotions there is the developing of authentic and genuine love and compassion we have many methods of developing these that are taught in Tibetan Buddhism and anyone can benefit from them. Again, without following or even knowing about any of the religious aspects of Buddhism. Love and compassion are based on everybody being equal. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be unhappy. Everybody likes to be happy. Nobody likes to be unhappy. We are all the same. And we're all interconnected. My whole life depends on the kindness and the work of others. We think of all the people involved in growing the food that we eat, transporting it, bringing it to our stores, and their parents, and their teachers, and their grandparents, and their teachers, and it goes on and on. The interconnectedness, you just look at a simple piece of bread sitting on a plate in front of you, and you can 
just using a little bit of imagination, you can bring hundreds of thousands, millions of people into the picture, going back all the different aspects of that piece of bread getting being grown and getting to and baked and being brought to you on this plate. Millions of people involved where if any of them did not do what they were supposed to do or what they had done, that piece of bread is not sitting on that plate, on that table in front of you. That's just how it works. That's just how it works. We're all interconnected. We're all interconnected. My whole life depends again on the kindness and the work of others. And it's not just the people who were involved in growing the food that we eat and transporting it, bringing it to our stores. There are the people who built the roads and the people who built the trucks to carry the food. And where did the metal come from? Someone had to mine the metal to make the trucks. What about the rubber for the tires? Where did that come from? So many people involved in the industries that bring the food to us. And what about the, the, the gasoline and the dinosaurs on whose decomposed bodies the gasoline, the oil emerged? So if we think like that, then we see that we really are completely interconnected and have been and continue to be dependent on everyone else. This becomes even more evident if you consider the global economy, which we're all struggling with, uh, with our place in the global economy. So on the basis of understanding that equality of everyone and our interdependence with everyone, then we think of in terms of, well, whatever problems there are, they really have to be solved. Because as one great Indian Buddhist master said, quote, Problems and suffering do not have an owner. Suffering needs to be removed. Not because it's my suffering or your suffering. It has to be removed because it's our suffering. It's the suffering and it hurts. So when there's a problem with the environment, let's say it's not just my problem or your problem. It's everybody's problem. There's no owner to the problem. It has to be solved because it's a problem, simply because it's a problem and causes trouble to everyone. So like that, we develop love, we develop compassion in a method that has nothing to do with religion, but is based totally and completely on logic and reality. Logic and reality, Buddhist science. So if we ask, well, why the Tibetan sciences? Why Buddhism? You know, what I've just discussed, again, in very high, high-level summary, these are the aspects that make, that make these teachings relevant for us here in the Western world, the 21st century, the scientific aspects, the psychological aspects. And then perhaps for a few of us Westerners, we might find in addition the religious aspects of Buddhism beneficial, you know, the rituals, the teachings about rebirth, the prayers, and so on. But I really do believe it's very important, if that's where we tend to go, I think it's very important to examine very carefully what is the reason, what's our reason for this attraction? Is it just fascination with something that's exotic? Are we looking for some sort of miracle? Do we think if we sit on our meditation cushion and are able to sit quietly for a few minutes without moving, that somehow we're, it's 
We're going to become more holy. We're going to get that beautiful look on our face, you know, the soft eyes and the little smiles and little wise smile. And people are going to look at us and be really impressed by that or whatever it is, you know. Or are we are we doing this? Are we getting involved in Buddhist religious aspects because it, we're doing it, it's come some kind of a rebellion, you know, some kind of uh, against our parents' traditions or whatever. Or is it the present trend, you know, is it kind of cool to be involved with Buddhism? These are not valid reasons. These are not valid reasons and they're not valid because they don't, they're not stable and they don't last. If we're attracted and we find that it's beneficial for us, if we begin to study and engage in these religious aspects and we find that this is helping me be kinder and more compassionate and it enriches and supplements the scientific and psychological aspects, well, that's very important. It needs whatever spiritual or whatever religious or dogmatic activities or ideas that we tend to get involved with it's very important that they supplement the science and the psychology and not substitute for it, but supplement and enrich. And then if the religious aspects have that going for them, then that's fine. So it's kind of how we differentiate Buddhist science, Buddhist psychology, and Buddhist religion. You know, in summary, I am reminded of a conversation that I had. It was, it was years ago while I was uh, actually on retreat in Bodh Gaya in India, probably about 10 years ago. And it was a nighttime discussion. And the, the topic was just this, you know, is Buddhism a religion or is it a, what is it? Uh, just a, a, a science? Is it a psychology? What is it? And what was put forth was that a religion, in order for something to be a religion, it needs to have three components. Component number one is it needs to put forth ethical guidelines, ways of living, beneficial, wholesome, non-harming ways of living. And certainly Buddhism, all forms of Buddhism do that. The second item was that it needs to it needs to prepare, it needs to discuss and prepare one for what occurs after death. Uh, is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? A religion needs to bring that idea or that concept that there is something that is going to occur and whatever the religion is will determine what it is that's going to occur. But there is something that's going to happen at the moment of death or immediately thereafter. And a religion needs to uh, consider that, put that for the, for the consideration of its practitioners. Certainly Buddhism does that. And then there's the third item, and that is that in order for something to be called a religion, there needs to be a divinity. There needs to be a god or a creator. There needs to be that figurehead, inspirational and uh, something that no one can ever be. We can be like that and we can emulate, but they're different. There's a divinity, a, 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 a godlike nature. And that's where Buddhism falls off the table, because Buddhism, as you may know, 
does not put forth the idea of a divinity, of a creator, the Buddha. Buddha means awakened, and Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha. Buddha is just a title, a label, an imputation for what he became, a man who did the work and achieved the full potential of his mind, the enlightened potential of his mind. And anyone who practices, any sentient being, being with mind, anyone who practices, who follows this path can become that, can become Buddha, can become awakened. So without that type of a, of a figurehead, a divine godly figurehead, Buddhism does not fall into the classification of a religion. And there is a lot of uh, confusion about that. And so just consider Buddhism, religion, not religion. Certainly for the Tibetan people, Buddhism is a religion. If you've ever been in a Tibetan community, you will see how integrated Buddhism is to their beliefs. And I think that if you were to question many they would infer that, in fact, the Buddha is some kind of a divine figure. And the Dalai Lama is looked upon as, as a God figure, as a, as a mother, as a father, as some, some type of, not a creator necessarily, but as some kind of divine figure. But here in the West, it doesn't really hold water. So thank you for, for listening. It's an interesting topic. If you'd like to follow up, if you have any questions at all, please feel free, send me an email, get right back to you. We can chat, we can chat on the phone, we can chat online, we can communicate via writing. Again, my name is Mark Winwood, and you can reach me at mwinwood, M-W-I-N-W-O-O-D, at gmail.com, mwinwood. I live here in Duval, Snoqualmie Valley of Western Washington State, and we have activities. We have teaching and practice activities every other Thursday evening in downtown Duval at Longevity Foods. Information, calendar, and so on are available online at www.chenrezig, C-H-E-N-R-E-Z-I-G, project, chenrezigproject.org. Or again, simply, you can just send me an email and say, hey, what's happening? And I'll get back to you. We do online teachings on Wednesday, and we, uh, we do a lot. We're busy. So please be in touch if you're so inclined. Once again, thank you for listening. And the outgoing music, as well as the incoming music, uh, once again, was performed by Bobby Vega. Bobby is a, a friend, Bay Area musician, who has very generously allowed me to use his music, to share his music however I'd like on our program. So thank you, Bobby. And we'll be back next week. Thank you so much. This is The Elegant Mind. KAPY Valley 104.9 FM Community Radio, serving the communities of Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge in Washington's lower Snoqualmie Valley. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.